Hi everyone, I'm Madden. And I'm Zoe. And this is the Unnamed O Podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to tell you the story of a man who was found in Arches National Park, Utah. This is the story of the man in the park. Okay, before we start, Zoe and I wanted to tell you guys that this is our first episode on the main feed, fully remote. So we're still working on figuring out audio and how to do this not in the same place. So please be patient with us and we're going to try and give you guys the best episodes we possibly can. Thank you guys in advance. To be honest, if you guys made it through our very first episode, you'll be fine. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) And with that said, let's get into our episode. On February 12th, 1983, a rancher was hiking in the Arches National Park in Moab, Utah. The rancher hiked around the Three Gossips area of the park before stumbling upon a body sprawled on its back in a sandy wash. The decedent, who was determined to be a John Doe, was less than 100 yards away from the pavement, and he had been shot in the back of the head one time with a 22 caliber gun. The bullet had traveled through John Doe's brain but stopped before exiting the front of his skull. Even though his postmortem interval was estimated to be around two months prior to his discovery, the dry, winter desert air had preserved his remains. I went down a tiny rabbit hole and read an academic article about decomposition rates in arid environments. That does not sound fun. Thanks for doing that for us. (laughs) Aren't you proud of me? I am very proud. I don't know if I could have done that. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I read the abstract only. (laughs) I just wanted to sound professional. That's how you read academic papers. You read the abstract and the conclusion, and that's all you need. Yep. So, the study was conducted in southern Arizona, which is in the same geographical region as Utah where our John Doe was found. The study found that in the desert, summer temperatures can accelerate rates of decomposition, but winter temperatures can create environments conducive to preservation. In certain circumstances, the dry weather can actually lead to mummification of the remains. Here's a quote from that paper, quote, remains can retain a fresh appearance for a considerable time in the winter, end quote. This is important to our case because John Doe was found in February, and he was estimated to have died two months prior. This postmortem interval could be slightly off since the remains were so well preserved. This means that he was likely preserved over the winter months, so his postmortem interval could be slightly longer than two months. But either way, we still know a lot about the physical characteristics of John Doe, since his decomposition was slowed down. According to the Doe Network, John Doe was estimated to be a white, 18-25-year-old to 25 year old biological male with light brown, slightly curly hair. His eyelashes, eyebrows, and beard stubble were blonde. He was likely 5'5 five five to 5'9 five and 132 to 152 pounds, and his eye color is unknown. NamUs is a little more specific and says that John Doe was 5'7 and 142 pounds. Personally, as long as it's not too broad, I actually prefer a range, which is what the Doe Network gave, because getting too specific like NamUs did excludes too many people, in my opinion. I agree 100%. At the time of his discovery, John Doe was found wearing an unzipped pair of blue jeans that the Doe Network notes had nothing in the pockets. He was also wearing white socks. Near John Doe's body was a white baseball cap, a Van Hussen brand light blue or lavender colored shirt, and a partially full pack of Camel cigarettes. So, he was found wearing the blue jeans and the socks, and then everything else was found near his body? 
Yeah, which I think is slightly strange. Yeah, because, I mean, you would think the shirt would be on him, and the baseball cap, I can kind of see how that would be near him, but also the cigarettes, I'm surprised, weren't in his pocket. That's weird. I agree. I don't really know what to make of that. Unfortunately, we don't have a forensic reconstruction of John Doe, and he didn't have any distinguishing features visible at first glance. But we do have a lot of biological identifiers. First off, law enforcement actually has x-rays of John Doe's teeth, and teeth 1, 16, 17, and 32 were all impacted. Teeth 1, 16, 17, and 32 are all third molars, or wisdom teeth. An impacted tooth, according to the American Association of Orthodontics, is a tooth that never erupts. Basically, it never breaks through the gums. There are a few things that can cause impacted teeth, like a lack of space in the mouth, the tooth coming in at a weird angle, or something blocking the impacted tooth. Wisdom teeth are the teeth that are most often impacted because there's either just not room for them or they're being stopped by your other molars. Impacted teeth can actually also be influenced by genetics, which could be a clue to help find John Doe's family. But unfortunately, in this case, tooth impaction, especially wisdom tooth impaction, is not exactly rare especially in people aged 17 to 25, which John Doe likely was. So while this is really interesting, it probably won't help aid in identification a whole lot. Probably not, unfortunately. Law enforcement also has John Doe's fingerprints available, but that's not all. This John Doe also has had both mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA extracted. Now, really, unfortunately, that's about all we know about this John Doe. But... I do have a story for you about a boy named Robbie P, whose story we're going to get into right now. Before we start his story, I want to give a quick note here to say that some of the sources detailing Robbie's possible connection to John Doe state that John Doe was found February 12th, 1982, but this is incorrect, as he was actually found February 12th, 1983. So just keep that in mind if you research this case on your own, you might see that incorrect date on a couple sources. With that said, let's get into Robbie's story. In 1982, 17-year-old Robbie P. was living in Provo, Utah. Provo is just south of Salt Lake City, and it's about three hours away from where John Doe was found. Robbie was a white male who was born on August 2, 1965. He had blue eyes and brown hair, and he was 5'8 and 135 pounds. A few years earlier, in 1978, Robbie began having run-ins with law enforcement, but they were for minor offenses, according to the Charlie Project. However, in September of 1982, he was arrested for a tobacco violation and sent to a juvenile detention center in Salt Lake City, Utah. This detention center was known as the Youth Diagnostic Center, or YDC, and according to Robbie's family, it was a quote-unquote lockdown facility. Okay, what do you mean by a lockdown facility? I think it just means that it was kind of like a prison or a jail. They weren't allowed to come and go. There were guards. Okay, okay. Stuff like that. Like, they were under lock and key, basically. Okay, gotcha. Once Robbie was placed into the YDC, the authorities were actually considering transferring him to a different location. They wanted to refer him to a residential treatment facility called the Utah Boys Ranch. Robbie absolutely did not want to be transferred to the Utah Boys Ranch, and he was very, very opposed to this idea. Utah Boys Ranch, which has a different name now, is located in Jordan, Utah. It was a boys-only facility until 2005 when it changed its name to Westridge Academy and began accepting girls as well. Westridge Academy states that it is a treatment center for quote-unquote troubled youths. However, it has been the subject of many abuse allegations and much criticism. Yikes. Yeah, not great stuff. One of the former children at this camp published an article about his experiences. 
And he was there when it was Westridge Academy, not the Utah Boys Ranch. So the boy who published this article wrote that he was taken to Westridge Academy in the middle of the night, where he was forced to do manual labor, not talk to anyone, and was watched 24-7. Punishments and humiliation were frequent occurrences. The article also discusses how the camp used to be the Utah Boys Ranch, and the horror stories about the physical abuse that was said to happen back when the camp was the Utah Boys Ranch. This sounds horrible. Yeah, basically what this article was saying was that even though Westridge Academy was not great, the Utah Boys Ranch was even worse, and they heard a lot of stories about how they should be glad it wasn't still like that. So just keep in mind as we continue that even though Westridge Academy faced some allegations, according to people who went to Westridge Academy, the stories about the Utah Boys Ranch were even worse. So in 2021, several articles were published about Westridge Academy after an employee at Westridge Academy was charged with child abuse after breaking a child's wrist at the facility after that child allegedly acted out in class. Oh my god, that is awful. That's absolutely awful. And this happened because these facilities are allowed to use restrictive holds. There's not many regulations governing these sort of facilities, and they're allowed to use physical restraint. And yeah, they got sued because the employee ended up breaking the child's wrist after he acted out in class. That's insane. Now, this lawsuit in 2021 after the broken wrist allegedly occurred, again, I can't say definitely because I don't think that that has been settled in court and I don't want to say definitely and accidentally get sued. So after that allegedly happened, that was just the most recent of the lawsuits that have been levied against Westridge Academy. Westridge Academy also faced lawsuits in 2008, 2010, and 2012 from former students. Several lawsuits against Westridge Academy were also settled out of court. And the Academy, from what I could find online, has never been officially convicted of abuse, but it has been brought forth by many former students. Right. Additionally, in online communities, the Academy has gained an infamous reputation among people who have experience with the troubled teen industry, or TTI, as it is commonly known. So I've kind of hinted at this already, but Westridge Academy is still operating. So I don't want to get sued for saying anything slanderous or anything that could be construed as slanderous. So everything I just told you about them is publicly available information and not speculation on my part. So now I'm going to move on from talking about Westridge Academy specifically, but I couldn't let this episode go by without taking this opportunity to talk about the troubled teen industry in general. According to an article published by the University of New Hampshire, the TTI is, quote, a term used to describe a system of underregulated residential youth treatment facilities that operate primarily in the United States, end quote. Seems very shady. Yeah, I would agree with you. The TTI is a multi-billion dollar industry, and it is absolutely infamous for the many abuse charges it has faced. Children may be sent to these facilities for any number of reasons, including mental health struggles, misbehaving, and way more. One of the biggest problems I'm seeing with this so far is they're trying to use a one-size-fits-all solution for kids who have a lot of different things going on instead of trying to help the children individually, which it doesn't seem like they're really trying to help the children, but also a one-size-fits-all is not how you help children who are having issues or having struggles. I see a lot of issues and you've barely talked about it. 
Yeah, and we're going to get into way more issues than even this. Unfortunately, parents often do not fully know what sort of environment they're sending their children into. The facilities are presented to the parents as healthy, happy rehabilitation spaces, when the reality is often much harsher. How do the parents find these places? These places have websites and stuff, so I assume if a parent feels like they are having struggles with their child, they would just Google, but I don't know. But I do know that a lot of the times parents don't actually know what sort of thing they're sending their kids into. Right. That's not to say they don't always know. Sometimes parents are well aware of what they're sending their kids to, but I don't want all the blame to be put on the parents here because there are definitely some that don't know. Yeah. Often, children are brought to the facilities through involuntary youth transport. Essentially, a child is woken up in the middle of the night, forced out of their home, and taken to the facilities. If the children resist being taken, physical force is used. Essentially, this is legal kidnapping. That's pretty disgusting. Yeah. And in order to do this, the parents actually have to sign away their rights to the children legally. Oh, so they, like, give up guardianship? Yeah. And then the parents regain guardianship, I believe, once the child reaches the camp. That is sketchy. Well, because otherwise, if those people took the kids in the middle of the night, that would be, like, non-custodial abduction. Oh my god. So the parents have to sign over their guardianship, from what I could tell. I'm not an expert on this, but that's what I gathered. Oh my god. That's real shady. According to that article that I mentioned earlier, it's estimated that anywhere from 120,000 to 200,000 children are in the TTI in the United States at any given time. Whoa. It's a lot. That's a lot. It's honestly an insane number. I see how this is a multi-billion dollar industry because I can imagine that these facilities are charging a lot of money for this which is disgusting. Wow, that's crazy. Also, I know it seems like Zoe and I already are being like super critical of the troubled teen industry. And if you don't know what is going on in the troubled teen industry, we'll get there, but it's not a good system. And so if it seems like right out of the gate, we're already being harsh, that would be why. And we'll explain it more. So the troubled teen industry actually began in 1958 with a program called Synanon, founded by a man named Charles Diedrich. Synanon was founded as a rehabilitation center for people suffering from addiction to drugs. Synanon used techniques like attack therapy, isolation, limited freedom, and more. I'm sorry, attack therapy? Yeah, I'm gonna explain that in just a second. Okay. It doesn't sound great, though, from even the name, I know. Yeah. And it's not, for the record. By the late 1970s, Synanon had actually developed into a cult and was promoting the Synanon religion. Diedrich was the quote-unquote highest spiritual authority of the cult. That's not good. No. That's not good. No, it's not. Cults are awful. We've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you suspect that you're in a cult, there are resources available for you. You can get out. Synanon did not believe in using medication for drug addiction, and instead it used what it called the quote-unquote Synanon game. This is already so messed up. I don't even know what to say. Yeah. The Synanon game was group attack therapy, where members of the group were encouraged to verbally attack, humiliate, and denounce other members of the group publicly. That's horrible. Absolutely horrible. Yeah. So that's what attack therapy is. And that is what the Synanon game was. Synanon popularized attack therapy as a treatment for addiction and believed that it could cure adolescents that misbehaved as well. 
I would like to see the scientific papers for this. Haha, <laughs> there's probably none. Also, I would like to point out that adolescence misbehaving is a pretty common part of adolescence. And I know sometimes it's more extreme, but that's not something that needs to be cured. It's not an illness. Yep. Again, these people are just pulling things out of their and saying that it's fact. Yeah. And basically using it as a way to abuse children. Synanon shut down in 1991 after it went bankrupt, but its influence lingered. Synanon inspired more quote-unquote therapeutic boarding schools, group homes, and behavior modification programs like CEDU, the Elon School, and the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, also known as WASP. All of these programs have shut down due to lawsuits or widespread allegations of physical and psychological abuse. Raise your hand if you're surprised. Not at all. Many programs in the modern-day TTI have been influenced by Synanon and use similar techniques. Punishments in present-day programs have been criticized as abusive and neglectful. Common punishments within these programs include things like limiting or cutting off communication with family and fellow camp members, physical restraint, sedation, solitary confinement, involuntary strip searches, sleep deprivation, manual labor, and so much more. That is all torture for children. This is legalized torture of children. Basically, and it's been criticized as such. I don't understand how this is still happening and still going on. Well, I can tell you why this is still going on. There is little to no regulation or oversight for these programs. And when one shuts down, another opens in its place. However, Utah, California, Oregon, Montana, and Missouri have enacted laws to increase the oversight of these facilities. Similar laws have been proposed at the national level every year from 2007 until 2018, but none have been passed in both the House and Senate. And why? I don't know. Why? Wow. One of the most outspoken critics of the TTI is actually Paris Hilton. According to ParisHilton.com, Paris has, quote, made it her mission to empower survivors of the troubled teen industry and use her global platform to make sure no more youth suffer at the hands of these systemically abusive institutions, end quote. Good for her. I hate that she has experience with this, but at least she's using her experiences to try to help others. And trying to raise awareness. It's a really good thing that she's done. According to Paris, when she was 16, she was taken from her house in the middle of the night, like we talked about, after her parents were manipulated into believing that tough love programs would cure her diagnosed attention deficit disorder. I'm not hating on her parents. I just don't understand how anybody could think that, quote, tough love and what's going on at these programs could cure attention deficit disorder. And then manipulate parents who are just trying to do their best for their child into believing that this is the way to cure their child. That is disgusting to me. And the other thing is, like, her ADD was diagnosed. It wasn't like she was acting out and they didn't know what was happening. Yeah. She had diagnosed ADD and her parents got told that sending her to one of these institutions would, quote unquote, cure her. That's horrible. Which you don't need cured from ADD. Right. So after a few stays at various programs, Paris would eventually be sent to Provo Canyon School in Provo, Utah. There, she suffered physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Survivors of the troubled teen industry are advocating for Congress to put a stop to this industry. They are also fighting to educate the general public about these programs and shed light on what's actually happening within the facilities. If you want to know more about the troubled teen industry, many survivors are participating in a movement known as Breaking Code Silence. 
and sharing their stories of institutional child abuse and the troubled teen industry. Their stories are absolutely heartbreaking, but they are so important to share. It's really hard to hear about this, but it's important, like you said, because it's the only way that these places can be brought to light and they can finally end. And the reason that they're so successful is because they're preying on desperate parents who don't know what's happening there. But if people know what's happening there, right, then maybe they won't send their kids there. So I can't even imagine how much strength it takes to speak out about these programs, but I'm so glad that people are doing it. Now that you know more about the troubled teen industry, let's get back to Robbie's story. Remember, Robbie was being held in that juvenile detention center, but authorities were considering transporting him to the Utah Boys Ranch. And now you might see a little more why Robbie was so very against this idea. So on October 7th, 1982, he and another boy escaped from the Youth Diagnostic Center. This was just four months before John Doe was discovered. The boy Robbie escaped with was later located, but Robbie has never been seen or heard from since. According to the boy Robbie escaped with, he and Robbie had parted ways as soon as they were out of bounds of the YDC, so he had no idea where Robbie had gone after they split up. Robbie's mother and law enforcement began to suspect that Robbie may have met foul play once his 18th birthday passed. Robbie had been set to inherit a substantial amount of money on his 18th birthday, but he never collected it. Additionally, Robbie had ran away in the past, but he had always maintained communication with his mother, including letting her know when he was in trouble. But when he escaped from YDC, he had no contact with his mother. However, according to KSL-TV5, Robbie was communicating with other people after he escaped. This included a 56-year-old man who Provo Police Lieutenant Chris Chambers believes Robbie may have been having a relationship with, and they may have been living together. Quick note to say that a 56-year-old man cannot have a relationship with a 17-year-old boy. That is not a relationship, but that's what the police were calling it. That is not good. However, even though police do believe that Robbie was maintaining communication with this man, there have been no confirmed sightings of Robbie. And around the time that John Doe was discovered, Robbie's communication seemed to go silent. Additionally, around the time that John Doe was discovered, the man that Robbie may have been having a relationship with disappeared. Wow, that's real suspicious. Just a bit. Police believe that the man went back to Holland because he was originally from the Netherlands. Police have not been able to track him down, but they do note that they're not calling him a suspect or even a person of interest, just someone they want to talk to. So with all of that, I can totally see why Robbie's connected to John Doe. Yeah, the timing is just really suspicious. Especially with John Doe's cause of death and the guy fleeing the country. Yeah. There were several leads that Provo police followed in Robbie's case, but none of them really went anywhere. I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but the Provo police department were the ones that handled Robbie's case because that's where he was from, even though it wasn't where he went missing from. Gotcha. Anyway, once when Robbie had run away previously, he went to Colorado and did odd jobs like roofing to earn money. After he escaped from the YDC, Provo police received a tip that Robbie might have fled to Colorado again under a fake name that he had used in the past on a fake ID to buy alcohol. Police did investigate that lead, but they never found anything that could prove he was there. In 1993, Provo police got an anonymous tip that said that Robbie and two other people had been playing a version of Russian roulette where the player holding the gun places it on the back of someone else's head instead of their own, and then they pull the trigger. What kind of game of Russian roulette is this? Murder. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's called. Just a real stupid game of murder. Wow. 
I'm sure everyone out there knows this, but if you don't, Russian Roulette is a pretty dangerous game people play where they take a revolver and they put one bullet in the chamber and they take turns passing it around and firing it at themselves and hoping that they don't get the shot that has the bullet. But in this version of that, supposedly they were pulling the trigger at someone else. So according to this tip, Robbie was actually the one killed during this game and his body was buried somewhere near Tipanogo's cave which is located between Provo and Salt Lake City. Lieutenant Chambers said that tip was never confirmed either and said that the evidence did not support this theory. Even though that theory was ruled out, another interesting thing happened that same year in 1993 that raised police's suspicions about Robbie's disappearance. Robbie's pickup truck was found underwater near Page, Arizona. A rope or wire had been tied to the wheel to hold it in place as the truck was sent into the lake without a driver. So this is way after Robbie disappeared. Yeah, it is. That's weird. But they don't know how long the truck was in the lake. That's just when they found it. And it had been rigged to drive itself into the lake to dispose of it. That's suspicious. Oh, it gets a little bit more suspicious. Like I said, the truck had been placed into the water sometime between 1982 and 1993, although it's really impossible to say when exactly. The owner of the truck, the 56-year-old man that we mentioned earlier confirmed that he had bought the truck for Robbie after Robbie escaped from the YDC, but kept it in its own names so that the police wouldn't track Robbie down. There were also pictures of Robbie in the truck and letters written to Robbie by the man, but no clues about Robbie's whereabouts. In 1991, Robbie was legally declared dead, which was again two years before the truck was found. And I don't know exactly when, but at some point, Robbie's dental x-rays were uploaded to national databases, as were John Doe's. Things didn't move in Robbie's case until 2018. In 2018, a Provo police officer was looking over some old cases that the department still had. He'd actually been recovering from surgery, so he couldn't go out into the field. So he was responsible for reviewing old cases. He happened to open Robbie's case because of a John Doe that was found in another state who had similar characteristics. This is not the John Doe we're talking about today. The officer was able to rule that John Doe out. But while Robbie's case was being re-looked at, a forensic dentist happened to examine Robbie's dental records that had been submitted all those years ago. When these records were originally submitted for testing, the dental x-rays between Robbie and John Doe were not a match. But when the forensic dentist re-looked at the dental records in Robbie's case, the dentist made an insane discovery. Robbie's original dental x-rays had been entered into the national database upside down. I'm sorry, what? I don't even know. I don't know how that happens. Top teeth and bottom teeth don't even look the same. No, I don't understand. So that original comparison, no wonder they didn't match. Those x-rays wouldn't have matched with anyone. They were upside down. The forensic dentist corrected the x-rays, and as soon as they re-entered them in the database, they got a hit. Was it John Doe? It was. Robbie's dental records matched John Doe's more than 90%. Whoa. Whoa. So this simple mistake had basically cost the investigation years of its time. Oh my gosh. That's insane. However, as promising as this hit was, it wasn't enough for the state medical examiner to officially conclude that Robbie is the Moab John Doe. Which I can understand. What about DNA testing? Well, we're about to get there. Because this match was so promising, law enforcement began actively working the case again to try to get a definitive match between Robbie and John Doe. To do that, they needed DNA. But there was an issue. Robbie had actually been adopted at 11 months old. 
so his adoptive family could not provide a DNA sample to test against. Oh, no. Police petitioned a judge to unseal Robbie's original birth certificate so that they could track down his birth family and get DNA, but the judge denied the request. What? I don't know why. I don't understand at all. I don't understand either, to be honest. I don't know. I don't know why the judge didn't want to unseal those records, but they didn't. Even with the dental match. That is very weird. I don't like that. Yeah. Police actually fought for years to get Robbie's adoption records unsealed so that they could track down a DNA sample, but they were continually unsuccessful. That is insane. So year after year, they were denied unsealing these records. That's ridiculous. Robbie's family, the one that he had been adopted into and raised with, really obviously wanted to do what they could, but they just couldn't give a DNA sample. Yeah. However, they did have a sample of hair that they'd kept in a baby book, and they were really hopeful that it would be enough to do DNA testing, so they actually gave that to the police in 2020. But the hair didn't have a root attached to it, so the lab doing the DNA testing couldn't extract enough DNA to compare to John Doe's sample. Dang. That's unfortunate. It would be so horrible to be his family and know that you could not biologically give the information that would finally give you closure. That has to be devastating. I can't imagine. I can't either because that was their son. Yeah. But they couldn't give the biological sample. Right. It'd be so heartbreaking. Especially with how close they are in this case to having this identification confirmed. Finally, in September of 2022, after exhausting all other efforts, the Provo police submitted one more request to access Robbie's original birth certificate. This time, it was approved. Thank God. I know, finally. It's about time. Police now have the names of Robbie's biological parents, but now they're facing a whole new challenge. Police can't find his biological parents. They don't know where they're at. Do they know for sure that those are their real names? Like, could they have used a fake name on a birth certificate? I don't know about that, but Provo Police did state that Robbie's parents have names that are very similar to many people throughout the country. Oh. So, tracking them down is going to be very difficult. Yeah. Plus, the police aren't even sure if Robbie's parents are still alive. They might have passed on. This is really sad. He's so close to being identified. Everybody is so close to knowing what's going on here. And it's just one little thing's in the way. That's horrible. Yeah, it really truly is. So in this case, the only thing left to do is track down Robbie's biological family and compare DNA samples. Police are almost certain that Robbie is Arjondo. It just needs to be confirmed, and they are working so hard to make that happen. Lieutenant Chambers said this about Robbie's case. Quote, We just want to give closure to it. We don't like having cases that are sitting out there and knowing that there are families that haven't had closure. And so if we have information we can go off of, we're taking the time to go off of it and follow every lead until we just can't follow anything anymore. End quote. Members of Robbie's family are still alive and hoping to find out what happened to Robbie, and John Doe is still waiting for his name back. Soon, hopefully, both of these cases will be closed. If you or anyone you know has information relating to the Moab John Doe or Robbie's disappearance, please contact law enforcement. Their contact information is on our website, theunnamedoe.com. Also, be sure to check us out on Instagram. We post all our photos there in addition to our website. If you're enjoying these photos, please consider leaving us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. 
And if you want to hear even more episodes, head over to our Patreon. We publish two extra episodes a month, one mini about an unidentified person and one full episode about a missing person. A portion of all the proceeds go towards organizations dedicated to solving cold cases like the ones we cover every week. As always, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Unnamed O podcast. We will see you next week. This episode was researched and written by Madden Delaney. All editing and music was done by Zoe Reese.